for our second sermon in this new series on the parables of Jesus. I invite you this morning to turn with me to the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Matthew, chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. I've titled the message, the sermon this morning, Understanding Jesus. What that means is understanding uh, what Jesus has accomplished in his first coming, uh, specifically focusing about the newness of ushering in the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. This is the word of the living God. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let us pray. God in heaven, I ask that you would cause your word to go forth through the mighty working of your Holy Spirit. Take my feeble words and use them to your glory and for the building up of your people, for our comfort and encouragement, for our rebuke, for our thankfulness and joy, all of which is in Christ Jesus. Looking forward to that day when we will be with him in glory forever. Use these words now, Lord, to sustain us and to equip us and to keep us going in the race of the Christian life. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Although there are a few birds that may reuse an old nest, in general, most birds do not reuse their old nests. Instead, they will go build a new nest in a new location for the next round of eggs. Why? Because most bird nests are made of flimsy material that is only strong and tough enough for one round of eggs and hatchlings. It is suitable for that use for one time. I mean, you've seen what birds use to build their nests, right? The little twigs, uh, pine straw, random bits of cotton or cloth or whatever they can find lying around here and there. They might use stones, little rocks or mud or grass. Sometimes they might even use their own spit. And so the, the nest is really not made to last. That nest gets exposed to the elements and, and it gets used. And those elements expand and, uh, as they hold the eggs. And then the hatchlings, as they flail about in the nest, it can knock the elements loose. And so 
those building materials do not last very long and, and they make the nest unsuitable for multiple uses. In other words, you don't put new bird eggs in an old nest. The old nest cannot sustain the new eggs. In our parable this morning, Jesus is going to contrast the old age with the new age that he is ushering in as the Messiah. And so in verse 14, we have the question. The question. The Pharisees of uh, the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees uh, come to Jesus to ask why Jesus' own disciples are not fasting. Now, the Pharisees and the disciples of John, they would have fasted not only on prescribed times according to the Mosaic law, such as the Day of Atonement, but they had also added their own regularly scheduled fasts that were not commanded. And so they fasted on Monday and on Thursday. In other words, they observed both the Mosaic law as well as their own human tradition. So they are quite surprised and taken aback to see Jesus and his disciples feasting rather than fasting. Jesus is reclining up a few verses in this chapter. Jesus is reclining at, at table with tax collectors and sinners, and he is eating and, and having a, a jolly good time. And this catches the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees off guard. Now, the Pharisees are probably asking this to try to trip up Jesus, as they so often try to do. Up to this point in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has healed a paralytic while also claiming to be God and able to forgive sins. Well, that sets the Pharisees off. And now Jesus, in the next scene, he's, he calls Matthew a, a tax collector. And the, these, these were viewed with, with disgust by the Pharisees. They were traitors to the Jewish cause because they conspired with the Romans and they extorted money from their own kin, their own flesh and blood. And then Jesus had the audacity to sit at a table with many tax collectors and sinners, verse 10 says. Again, earning the ire of the Pharisees. Everything Jesus has done in this chapter has gotten the Pharisees mad. And so there's no reason to believe that the Pharisees are genuinely looking for an honest uh, answer to their question here. Now, the disciples of John the Baptizer, they probably are genuinely looking for an honest answer about Jesus and his disciples and why they do not fast. While John himself did not struggle with Jesus and his ministry, John's disciples did. In John chapter 11, some of John's disciples seem to be upset that all the people are following after Jesus rather than John the Baptist. John is in prison at this point in time, and, and Jesus' ministry does not seem to be characterized by the same ascetic principles and practices that John the baptizer carried out, where he was clothed as, as a prophet, and he, he ate a very restrictive diet, and he was out in the desert, uh, separated from the people. And so here in verse 14, we have two different groups of people, the disciples of John and the Pharisees, they come and ask Jesus the same question, but from two different motives, two different purposes in their heart. And they ask him about fasting. And here we see just at the outset here that, that the ignorant, John's disciples, 
as well as the enemies of God, the Pharisees, were so caught up in outward ritual and human tradition that they tried to sow seeds of discord and division. You're not being strict enough in your religious observances like we are. To put it in terms that we've recently explored here at Trinity, the legalistic Pharisees and disciples of John are accusing Jesus and his disciples of being antinomian. And you can hear the proud boasting in their question, look at us, we fast. You don't. We are more holy than you. Why aren't you being more like us? Why aren't you following after our example? This is an example of taking a human tradition or even something uh, commanded in the law of God and, and turning it into a divine law to bind the consciences of others. Why don't you fast on Mondays and Thursdays like we do? Well, I don't, nothing in scripture prescribes that. And so I fast when scripture tells me to fast. I don't do it according to your man-made traditions. So, so they've taken uh, a human tradition of these extra fast days and they've turned it into a divine law to bind the consciences of others. That is legalism. Matthew Henry says, quote, It is a pity that the duties of religion, which ought to be the confirmations of holy love, should be made the occasions of strife and contention. But they often are so, end quote. Not only that, but you can also hear them taking confidence in their outward rituals as if mere performance of religious duties was something to brag about and plead before God and take confidence in as their righteousness. How do I know that I'm good with God? Well, <laughs> I fast. I fast every Monday and Thursday. And I fast on the Day of Atonement and all the other fast days. This is not fasting offered up from a heart of faith out of a love for God and to glorify God. This is fasting to please their own sinful flesh and to, to take pride in it. They, they are fasting in order to be seen by others. Jesus has not forbid fasting. Earlier in Matthew chapter 6, he has said that when you fast, meaning that he approves of fasting, do it in secret to be seen by the Father rather than by others. Jesus didn't forbid fasting. He forbid hypocritical fasting, legalistic fasting, which was merely putting on a religious show for others to be built up and almost worshipped by others, to, to have their pride fed. And people thinking just how holy these people were. So they've taken a, a, a good and godly discipline, a good and godly practice. They've turned it into a religious show. They've turned it into a legalistic affair, and they're using it to sow seeds of discourse and division, which is what Matthew Henry was talking about. They've, they've taken something good from God, and they've twisted it and corrupted it in their sinful selves. So that's the question. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So Jesus takes this opportunity now to begin to talk about what his coming truly means. In verse 15, we have Jesus' answer. Jesus said to them, 
Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus responds with a a short and fairly simple parable. He compares himself to a bridegroom at a wedding. And as it is today, so it was back then, that weddings were a time of joy and celebration. There's wine, there's food in abundance. I mean, Jesus in John 2, he turns the water into wine at the wedding in in Cana. Everybody is celebrating. Early in John the Baptist's ministry, John referred to himself as the best man, or, or to put it in terms of scripture, the friend of the bridegroom. John chapter 3, verse 29 And in that same verse, John says that he must increase and I must decrease. John's own disciples should have recognized this as John the Baptist recognized it. But they failed to understand this. They failed to understand the the teaching and the outlook from their own master. The fact that the king of the kingdom has arrived is to be a time of celebration. Christ is marrying a people to himself via the new covenant that had been prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31, in which Hebrews chapter 8 talks about Christ has fulfilled in his first coming. In the Old Testament, God referred to himself as a bridegroom. Listen to Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, which says, quote, In that day... A day that is coming in the future from the perspective of Hosea declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal, end quote. Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband and the Lord of hosts is his name. By using this parable to refer to himself, Jesus is saying that the God of the Old Testament is here dwelling in the midst of the people. The king has come. And while the bridegroom is here, the wedding guest, which stands for Jesus' disciples, can't help but celebrate. The people of God are celebrating that God is with them. Fasting represents a time of mourning over sin, a mourning and, and lamentation. It's a pleading to God in in intense cases of of extreme distress. So much so that that whatever the spiritual thing going on is, it's more important than the physical sustaining of your own body. That is not appropriate at a wedding celebration. However, Jesus says there will be an appropriate time for fasting in the future when he is taken away. And this is obviously a reference to his death. It's obvious to us after the fact. It was not so obvious to the disciples at this point. The verb taken away refers to a a violent and unwelcome removal. It's not that the bridegroom is going to leave the wedding celebration. It's that the bridegroom is going to be forcibly removed from the wedding celebration. Think about somebody kidnapping the bridegroom at, at, at gunpoint. That is what is going to happen to the bridegroom. He will be violently taken from them, and then they will fast. At Jesus' betrayal and death, then it will be appropriate for the guests to fast because mourning is appropriate for a funeral. 
And in a sense, it will be appropriate for us to fast here in this in-between time because though we have the spirit of Christ within us, it's only as a, a guarantee or down payment. It's not the fullness of Christ himself yet. And so fasting during this inter-advent period between the comings of Christ is also appropriate for us as the disciples of Jesus. Now in verses 16 through 17, we, we also have uh, two more illustrations or two, two more parables, if you will, that, that continue to inform us about what Jesus' coming truly means. In Psalm, both of these illustrations have the same message, that Jesus' coming as the Messiah of God has ushered in a new age. This is what the unshrunk cloth and the new wineskin uh, represent. It is the new covenant. It's what the, the Old Testament refers to as the age to come. And Jesus says it has begun. This age to come of the Old Testament has begun with his first coming. The old age of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, has passed away with the first coming of Jesus. The old age is represented by the, the torn cloak and the, the old wineskin. And what Jesus says here in these two illustrations, these two parables, is that you can't simply make the new fit into the old. The teaching of Jesus and the age he has ushered in as the Messiah does not fit into the established system of the old. You can't simply add Jesus onto the Mosaic economy. His teaching and coming is not an accessory you can simply fit onto your already built and functioning automobile. In the days of Jesus, it would be foolish to try to patch a worn garment with a piece of new unshrunk cloth. The garment has already shrunk, and as soon as the new patch gets washed, it too will shrink. But guess what? As it shrinks, it's going to rip and make the tear even worse than it was to begin with. <laughs> Back when I was a kid, whenever I'd get a hole in my jeans, my mom would use one of those iron-on patches. Do you remember those? Those iron-on uh, patches to, to try to cover up the hole. Today, it's, it's in fashion to just, you buy the jeans with holes in them already. But back then, you, you covered up the hole, you patched them together because that was your only pair of jeans. And you were going to make them last as long as you possibly could. But those things looked awkward on your jeans, didn't they? You had this flexible denim which had been worn, but you had this one spot, and you could see the patch, right? You could see the square, and it didn't necessarily match in color. So it was kind of off shade, and it sticks out like a sore thumb. And the patch was rigid while the rest of the, the denim of the jeans was flexible. And it's the same thing with the animal skins that they used as, as wine containers. As the wine fermented, the gases would cause that, that tanned animal skin to, to expand. But over time, the skin would get so brittle that if you put new wine into it, as it expanded, an old brittle wine skin would just burst. There's too much internal pressure. And of course, when it bursts, the wineskin is destroyed and the wine, new wine is on the ground. And so it is ruined. It is lost. The old wineskin is not suitable to contain new wine. And the old shrunken garment is not suitable for the unshrunken patch 
to be added to it. Likewise, the ministry and old age of Moses is not suitable for the ministry and new age of the Messiah. Grant Osborne, a New Testament commentator, says this, quote, Jesus has not come to amalgamate Judaism with Christianity. New forms are needed. Or as D.A. Carson, another New Testament commentator, puts it, quote, the newness Jesus brings cannot be reduced to or contained by traditions of Jewish piety, end quote. And so something new has come along, and, and it's, it's different. You can't fit it into the old, but also notice that in these parables of Jesus, there's also a similarity. The garment and the unshrunk patch are both pieces of cloth. The old wineskin and the new wineskin are both wineskins. And so there are going to be differences, but there's also going to be similarities. Or to put it differently, there's going to be both continuity as well as discontinuity in moving from the old covenant into the new covenant. In moving from the old to the new, the external and visible forms of the old age are now internal and spiritual in form, just like we read in, in 1 Kings about the, the water, the physical water that was in the physical temple points to the spiritual temple that we are and the spiritual cleansing of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's different in form. And it's spiritual and internal rather than external and visible. Another example, the incense of the Old Testament is now the prayers of believers offered through Jesus' name. The animal sacrifices of the old is now the sacrifice of the spotless lamb through whom we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. The temple of the old has been fulfilled in Jesus as the true temple who is building up his people as a living temple in him. The people of God have been transformed from a, a political, uh, geographical nation of Israel to a global church that's no longer tied to a particular piece of land. And it's invisible, right? There's, there's a visible aspect to the church, but it's the true church, the invisible church, the elect of God, cannot be seen, unlike the temple of the old. The day of worship has been changed from the day on which God rested from his works of creation to the day when the new creation was ushered in in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he rose from the grave as the first fruits of the resurrection which is to come. Our resurrection, the resurrection of the dead that we just confess that we believe in. The sacrament of circumcision has become the sacrament of baptism the sacrament of Passover has become the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And there's more. I could go on and on and on, but you get the picture. It's, it's different. What is external and visible in the old has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom of God. And through him, it's been transformed into internal and spiritual for his people in this new covenant age. But at the same time, there is continuity. In both the old and the new, we have the need for confession of sin. In both the old and the new, we need a substitute to stand in our place. In both the old and the new, there's the reading and preaching of God's word. In both the old and the new, there is prayer and there is fasting. In both the old and the new, there is the benediction. As Aaron raised both of his hands coming out of the temple, and Jesus raised both of his hands and blessed the people as he ascended into the heavens. 
In both the old and the new, there's a setting aside of one day and seven to worship. In both the old and the new, there's the moral law of God, which demands not simply outward observance, but also inward observance. As Jesus sits down on the mountain as the new lawgiver and gives the Sermon on the Mount where he explains to us the true heart of the Mosaic law and the Ten Commandments. Both circumcision and baptism signify the removal of sinful flesh and entrance into the visible covenant people of God. Both Passover and the Lord's Supper signify release from bondage and deliverance from death through the blood of an innocent and spotless victim. There is both continuity and discontinuity in moving from the old into the new. But you can't just fit the new on top of the old or fit the new into the old. It doesn't work. So how does these three short parables all related to one another, how how does it affect our lives today? What does patched denim jeans and unusable bird's nests teach us about the the spiritual truths of the kingdom of God for us today? There's many lines of application that I could take here. I could go in the direction of, of how this old and new paradigm undergirds Paul's writing in the book of Galatians. The Judaizers were trying to fit Christ into the old. And say it's not just faith in, in Christ, but you've got to add works and the dietary laws and circumcision and, and follow Moses. That's what they were trying to do. But I want to focus on one particular application for us here today, and, and that's the joy that Jesus describes in talking about his presence as a wedding. The moment we are converted and become a Christian, we become a part of the church, which is the bride of Christ. And we become united to Christ by faith, and he is the bridegroom. And the bridegroom's spirit, whom Paul calls the spirit of Christ, is dwelling within us, which means that when we become a Christian, our lives are marked by the joy that we have by being united to our bridegroom. The presence of the bridegroom is within his beloved ones. It's within you and me. And Romans 14, 17 says that the the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we know from Galatians chapter 5 that one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is joy. Matthew Henry says, quote, The faithful followers of Christ who have the spirit of adoption, have a continual feast. End quote. We have, you and I have, an objective joy by knowing Christ and being united to him by faith. It's a joy that can never be taken away from us. Because Christ has done it all for us. He did it for the joy that was set before him. And he's won that joy for us. And he gives us his spirit as a down payment of that joy. He says, you know what? My joy is going to be with you always. And nothing can take that joy away. So we have an objective experience, an objective uh, possession. True and lasting joy is really yours and mine 
and for all who are in Christ Jesus by faith. But we also have a subjective experience of joy, and this subjective experience of joy can grow or diminish in our circumstances as we walk in this fallen world. Mourning the death of a loved one, a parent, a child, a sibling, long-term sickness, losing your job, losing your abilities as you grow in age, even sin itself can rob us of our subjective experience of joy, right? We don't feel joyful when we're mourning over death or mourning over a long-term illness that, that tests our patience and that, that seems like it will never end. We, we, we don't feel joy when we've lost a job and we're, we're scrambling around. How am I going to provide? What am I going to do next? We don't feel joy when we, when we lose those abilities that we, that we were once able to enjoy, as, as our body uh, decreases and diminishes as we get older. And of course, it's impossible to, to feel joyful if you're living in constant habitual sin, if you're backsliding into sin. So we have a subjective experience of joy which can grow or diminish Paul's prayer for the church in Romans 15 is that the God of hope would fill his people with all joy and peace in believing, which means that there can be times when we are empty of joy. David prays in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of salvation. Why was he not enjoying and having the joy of salvation in his experience? It was because of his sin and how he had tacked onto that sin with more sin had robbed him of that subjective experience of joy. In this interim, between the first and second comings of Christ, our experience of joy is incomplete and imperfect. That's why we need to be told from James chapter 1 to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. We need to be reminded because we lose our joy. We lose our subjective experience of that joy when we Counter trials and afflictions. So in this interim time, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. Our subjective experience of joy in the present time is mingled with grief and mourning due to sin and death and sickness and all the effects of sin in this fallen world. It includes our own battles with sin our subjective experience of joy is going to increase as we walk closer with God, but diminish when we are running from the Lord. There is an aspect of sanctification here to our experience of this joy. A person who's truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit cannot be joyful while walking in constant habitual sin. Whether it's alcohol or whether it's holding on to that grudge and refusing to forgive or, or whatever it may be. That subjective experience is not going to be there the further you are walking away from God. I mean, think about the prophet Jonah. 
You think any of that experience as he ran from God he was joyful for him? <laughs> yeah, I really want to be tossed overboard into a, to a raging sea and be swallowed up by a giant fish. <laughs> that would really make me joyful. No. Matthew Henry writes this, quote, It is merry or melancholy with the guest of the bride chamber, according as they have more or less of the bridegroom's presence. When he is with them, the candle of God shines upon their head and all is well. But when he is withdrawn, though but for a small moment, they are troubled and walk heavily. The presence and nearness of the sun makes day and summer. His absence and distance makes nights and winter. Do you hear what Matthew Henry is saying there? The closer we are to God is like when the earth is closer to the sun and it's daytime and it's summer and it's joyful. It's enjoyable. But the further away we are from God who is our center and the center of everything. It's like nighttime and winter. It's bleak, dark, and dreary. Henry concludes, Christ is all in all to the church's joy. Christ is everything to the church's joy as far as our subjective experience of it. Do you want your experience of joy to increase? Be constant in the word. Be fervent in prayer. Be diligent in corporate worship. Not as religious external observances, not from a hypocritical or proud heart, not to be seen, but because those are the means through which God in the person of his Holy Spirit works to keep us near himself. When you enter into corporate worship, you are entering into holy ground. You are entering into the presence of God. And Christ is our leader, leading us in worship. When you are in the word, you are in the, you are in the, the word of God. And the spirit of God brings thoughts and brings conviction and be, brings rebuke and encouragement and joy to you. And when you pray, oh, you can pray and you can pour out your heart to God knowing, being fully assured that he hears your prayers. It's the ordinary means of grace, which when used rightly, not from a heart of legalism like the Pharisees and John's disciples, but a heart of faith through the Holy Spirit, that the indwelling Holy Spirit takes those means and uses them to increase our subjective experience of the object of joy that Christ has given to us. So our, our, our time here in the in-between is, is both mourning and celebration, weeping and rejoicing. And so it is appropriate for us at times to fast and to plead with God and to mourn deeply over our sins and to plead with God and in cases of extreme distress, this is more important to me than, than even eating. I'd rather die from malnutrition than to not pour out in ardent and fervent prayer 
this thing that is weighing me down and the, the circumstances that are weighing heavily upon me. But there's also a time for joy. There's a time for joy. This, this is a family reunion each and every Sunday, which should be joyful unless you hate your family. But we shouldn't hate the family of God, right? This is the family that Christ died for. And so it's, it's a mixed experience. But there's coming a day when our joy will be made complete and perfect, when the object of joy of Christ that we have now by being united to him and our subjective experience of that joy, they're going to be brought together and matched perfectly. There will be no more fasting. There will be no more mourning. That is the day when the bridegroom who was violently taken away comes back for his bride. It happens at the moment of death. Enter into the joy of thy master. But that is for only our souls. When Christ comes back, the joy that our souls have experienced, our body is going to be reunited with our soul. And then our body will enjoy that same joy that our soul has experienced apart from the body. There is coming a day. Listen to the blessed words of Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 9 as we close our sermon today. Let us rejoice. Let us exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is you and me, ladies and gentlemen. And that is a day that we look forward to with much joy and anticipation. So no matter what your circumstances may be, trouble in your marriage, trouble in the workplace, lack of contentment, all manners of temptations, mourning over death, whatever your circumstances may be, don't let those circumstances blind you to the reality of the joy that you have in Christ. This is why we come back to his word. Because when our circumstances overwhelm us and they, they blind our eyes, we come back to put on the, the clean spectacles of the Word of God through the Holy Spirit who reminds us of what we possess in Christ Jesus. And then as we are reminded of what we have in Christ Jesus and the example that Christ Jesus left for us, then that will affect how we approach those troubling circumstances in the workplace, in the marriage, parenting, or what it may be. I look forward to the day when I will hear those words, enter into the joy of your master. Right now it's hard. Right now there's ups and downs. There's times to be joyful and there's times to mourn. But this is the blessed hope that we have in Christ Jesus that one day our joy will be made full, that our joy 
will be made complete and we will never have the joy of our salvation robbed of us by our sins, by the sins of the others, or by the sins and the effects of sin upon this fallen world. Amen and amen. Let us pray.